Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you come back into your family home and you show up as a different version of yourself that has done the work, you're already disrupting. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Human to Human, a space to reimagine self-love, strengthen interpersonal relationships, and peel back the layers of the human experience, one conversation at a time. Brought to you by the Revolt Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stacey Ike, and I am so excited to share this episode with you. This episode's guest is holistic psychologist, intergenerational trauma expert, and sound bath meditation healer, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Now, most of us have heard the term intergenerational trauma before, and it's pretty intense to tackle all at once. But the beautiful thing about this hour is Dr. Marielle teaches us how to take the first step in a digestible way. We talked about how to identify it, how to manage being a cycle breaker in your own life, which I just have to say, if you self-identify as a cycle breaker, I am so proud of you because we know that's not easy. Dr. Marielle also gives us tools to safely heal ourselves and our family. And that's the perfect word to describe this episode, healing. As always, I like to give recommendations based on our conversation. This episode's song of the week is Talk by Coldplay. This episode's book is Bell Hooks, All About Love. And while you're listening, reflect on this question. Is there something I have been avoiding forgiving my parents for? I hope this episode gives you exactly what you need to answer that question. Let's get human to human with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We have Dr. Marielle Bouquet in the building. She is a holistic psychologist, a therapist, an intergenerational trauma expert who also teaches psychology at Columbia University. She is extremely intentional about the work she does and the resources she brings to her community. And I'm so excited to have her on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to join and also just to be in conversation with you dealing and working and growing and doing all the layers of love within family is deep. So I first want to ask you in, in your, you know, many years of work and I'm just, excuse me, and work with yourself because you've been always really expressive about that. What's the last thing you forgave yourself for, for the first time? Whoa, love that question. Um, my goodness, the last thing I forgave myself for for the first time, it was for the first time. Mm-hmm. Goodness, I I do a lot of self forgiveness because I have to practice what I preach. So that's why I'm having trouble finding something. Um, but oh my goodness, I lost a really important item not too long ago, mm. and it took me a whole day of transitioning from the wallowing in the guilt to actually thinking about all of the moving pieces of what led me to actually losing the item. Like, you know, I'm pretty busy these days. There's a lot going on in my life. Um, It's kind of hard to keep up with a lot of things, including where I place things. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like um, the bringing in compassion was probably lengthier than what I'm accustomed to. I tend to usually talk to myself right in the moment, give gentle, kind, affirming words to myself. 
But I think that that one stuck out because it took me an entire day of just like sitting with like, how could I possibly misplace, you know, and just all those things. And then finally get to the piece where I was like, goodness, I'm just, I'm so human. And I have so much going on and, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to always have everything together. Okay. And I felt like that was a very needed message that I needed probably on a deeper level than just the thing I lost. Mm. Um, but yeah, but, but it felt good to, to once I got over that hump to actually get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It, it is really, I, I laugh at myself when I recognize that the retrospect, like I'll look back and be like, why did that take you so long to forgive yourself? Like, you know how to treat yourself. And then while it's happening, I can't seem to get out of it any faster than I do. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is as fast as I can go right now. This is <laughs> yeah. it. Like, yeah. I can't go, you know, mm-hmm. I have seen myself really you know, beat myself up and and figure out how to get out and then get to the kind part faster. And sometimes it takes a day and sometimes it takes an hour and sometimes it takes a week. And I'm like, and sometimes I just have to be okay with taking whatever time it takes. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love that you, you know, there's grace in in all of the timeframes, right? Because I think anybody might be listening and saying like a a day, that's all it took you. I've been hearing for years. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, you know, I think that that's also for me personally, very much a testament to the work that I've done for years in trying to gain self-compassion that comes sooner. And, and, you know, I've been able to narrow it down to a day, which I think is uh, fairly good for me so that I'm not in emotions that don't serve me well for too long. Yeah. A day is beautiful. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm super, you know, impressed with the day, but can we take, take me back to your background and how you were raised um, a little bit of why, you know, you got to this work and decided this was the work that you wanted to put in the world. So take me back to how you were raised um, growing up in your family, where there were a lot of things that you felt like now you are obviously healing from, but what was that like while you were living in it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, a number of things that happened in my family for generations that definitely tapped into my world in a way that left an impression. I think most notably, there have been experiences around poverty and experiences around growing up as a person that migrated to the U.S., um, having such little resources and for my mother specifically, not knowing the language. My dad, um, he was still in the Dominican Republic. So sometimes one parent comes with the kids and that whole thing. Um, and so that was us. And we, I didn't actually see my, well, I didn't live with my father again until my uh, college graduation. So I was already a whole adult <laughs> by mm. the time he was able to, to come to the U.S. Mm. Um, so a lot of my the things that feel like very prominently marked in my soul around growing up and and like the things that felt heavy had to do around the poverty piece, of course, the racial ethnic identity and and all of the conundrums that kind of follow it, and also the the immigration experience. But I think what buffered that a lot is the fact that my family had so much love. Like mm-hmm. my parents just, filled us with abundant love. Like my mom would always say, you know, we don't have much, but we have love. And that was always the case. And it still is, you know, like we have a lot of love and a lot of humor in our family. And I think that that really balanced my sister and I out 
pretty well. <laughs> like we're, we're fairly okay human. <laughs> um, thank goodness, because we, you know, we came, we came from stuff that um, was very heavy. It was very, very heavy. Wow. Mm -hmm. So have you been able to integrate a lot of the healing with them as well? Or did you feel like you had to start with you and then go backwards? Or did you have to start with you and keep going? Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning, it started with me, but I hadn't realized until I started writing my book, um, which focuses on generational trauma, I started writing and I was like, wait, but my sister was the one that broke the cycle. Like she's the one that really kind of came through. She's the oldest. Um, she's also, she kind of, by being the elder daughter, was mm -hmm. a little bit parentified and was um, always had my back. Like she, there was always like a presence about my sister. Um, and so knowing what generational trauma and generational healing looks like now, I'm like, oh, okay. I learned how to break cycles from my sister. Wow. Um and so the, the, you know, she's proofreading every chapter that I'm writing, right? So I send it to her first before I even send it to anyone else, my editor and anybody, because I want her to read it and see like, how does this sit with you as far as what you know about my work and what you know about what we lived and, mm -hmm. and getting her like to co-sign things feels, it really feeds my soul. It's just so good. <laughs> like I know I'm doing the right thing yeah. um but yeah it, I think um that a lot of my work is informed by the the breaking of generational cycles what I've seen a lot of families that look like us um go through but also you know the information that I got also by way of my sister and my family which is it's just very 360 for me what is something common that you do see that a lot of people experience when it comes to intergenerational trauma? Um, a lot of what tends to be common just across the board is family secrecy. Um, Ooh. <laughs> if you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. Ow. Yeah. <laughs> that always that that's always a thing. There's always a family secret. So do you mean keeping somewhere. secrets within the family or keeping secrets from other people in the family? Really kind of it, it runs a full gamut. Um, so it's there being a family secret that people are tucking away and they don't want to talk about because people basically just don't know how to deal with it, right? So they deny, they project, they do all the things. There's also, you know, keeping people away from what should stay in the family, right? So, I mean, there's, there's variations of that too, right? Airing one's dirty laundry or not doing so, right? Or bringing shame to the family and things of that nature. So that's, there's always some element of that. And it can be about anything. I mean, it can be about um, things related to, um, you know, someone having mental illness in the family and there being like shame around that. Um, mm. you know, there can be like a parent that maybe had, um, children outside of the marriage and the family came to find out later in life. Like there's just so many variations of what secrets can look like and ways that families keep it tucked in. How do you think that being in a family, your first lovers, right? Your first people, the first people who see you know, you, you know, are existing with you is the hardest place to be the most you. 
Mm. You know, the, the, the tough thing about families and having conundrums within families is that that's where our biggest emotional ties are. Like, so our hearts mm-hmm. tug harder with our families because that's where we learned emotion, right? And so like the more, the greater potency of our emotions is in two places. It's in the families that we have, right? The, the original families, some have chosen families. And then the second place is in our mother tongue. So like, for example, mine being Spanish, for me, the emotions that I express in Spanish or the emotions that I hear in Spanish or see in Spanish have a greater potency. And this has actually been studied, like have greater potency than the ones that um, are in English. Mm. And if I watch a movie um, and it's in Spanish. Like the other day, my dad was watching a Dominican movie and I, I was like, oh, wow, I really can't watch those movies because I, it's an instant, instant tear fest. I'm like, it's wild. Like the ways that the emotion is represented in Spanish and in English and in English, I can have like a very critical eye to what's happening, the storyline and this one and that one and mm-hmm. entanglement and like the whole thing. Right. And then in Spanish, I'm like, emotions all in and I'm like I can't I can't like disconnect them from me and (laughs) it's a mess but uh you know in learning about that in grad school about the ways in which um our our mother tongue just holds like the potency of those emotions I was like oh wow it's so fascinating because I've been feeling that and yet I never knew it and for anybody who would now know it right like I think it would make a lot of sense and bring a lot of enlightenment yeah I've heard you identify yourself as the matriarch of your family. Mm. What does that mean to you? What does that title and role look like for you? Mm-hmm. I think there's like, there's a little bit of a, maybe like a, a role that I share with my sister. Like I'm a bit more of the financial matriarch and I'm also like, I'm also the crisis person. So if there's a crisis, there's something about, I think it's mostly because of my training, but the ways that I know how to deal with crises that there is an automatic go-to Marielle. And, mm-hmm. and I, I basically like, I scan whatever's going on. I create solutions. I bring everybody's emotions to, you know, stable ground. And then I exit almost like a clinician. It's kind of mechanical, but, but I think, you know, it's because I want everyone to be well. Sure. And then I go and I isolate because I'm, I'm super introvert. So I go, I isolate and I do my thing. And I just like, you know, restore and do all the things that introverts do. But, um, but I think um, it's that I take care of folks. And then I also have this financial taken care of, right? Because my, my family, um, they're self-sufficient, but my goal for my family is to make us self-sufficient, not at the poverty level. Cause I still have family that live in a home without floor like without actual flooring like you and I will probably standing and sitting on carpet and you know wood and you know I have a family in DR who still has like it's a dirt floor right so it's like it's kind of like living experiences that you and I could never like have imagined you know like if we were never exposed to it right but that's what I mean like you know there's a lot of financial responsibility that I hold just kind of overall over my family but um, my sister, she plays a different matriarchal role and she used to be the matriarch. She stepped down and I took, you know, I took mm-hmm. the role more so than her, but, um, for her, I think it's, 
Um, she does a lot of relationship and connectivity for everybody. And she's just very thoughtful, like just kind of forward thinking about what everybody needs. And then sometimes she'll, you know, she'll let me know what people need and we kind of play, play a team role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being Nigerian American, I definitely understand the dual, dual national experience of, you know, living regions here or living experiences, living experiences with other family members. Um, I have a lot of family that's all over the world, really. But when you think about, when I think about my Nigerian family, and that also has a, a wide spectrum too, because there's some of my family that's super well off in Nigeria and some that's not. And it's like, you're constantly thinking about how to serve. And at the same time, I was thinking, I'm like, I wonder how her sister, because I'm the oldest as well. Mm-hmm. And that has played a interesting role in my life as a Libra cus Scorpio plus the oldest plus Nigerian plus and you're like this is stacking up <laughs> like mm-hmm. and it's it's all a part of the makeup right and so with that I when when someone is experiencing whatever role they are I'll specifically talk about you know being a matriarch or, or one of those roles in, a, in the family that's not I don't want to say the youngest isn't like have that pressure. Cause there's also another young, you know, there's also pressure in the youngest, there's pressure in the middle child, there's pressure in all the roles. So I think about the guilt that comes with some of those roles. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, have you, <laughs> yeah, your eyes go, I think about the guilt that comes with some of those roles, because as we're shifting and growing and moving through the inter intergenerational trauma and growing out of it or healing from it, their guilt is a real thing. Right. And in theory, I understand that guilt is a wasted emotion, but in truth and in perspective and in living, mm-hmm. it's a really tough thing. So for you, what does guilt look like for you on a good day when you are able to like, okay, I know I'm feeling guilty for something that I put on myself and a role that I've been playing, whether it's even the family role or friends role, but specifically since we're talking family. Um, and then what does it look like on a worse day when you're like, you know what, I I do feel guilty. I am taking it on. Whether somebody put it on me or I put it on myself, I am sitting in this guilt. How do you balance that? Mm, wow. You know, I I believe that I do a fairly good job with guilt. Um, I've been doing generational guilt-based work for a good decade. So I have a, a decade of work that shows up every time that guilt wants to enter, mm. you know, my sphere, mm-hmm. my energy field, whatever you may want to call it. Um, so there, there already, I have a protective factor against guilt because um, there's all of that. Like, I don't know um, if you ever heard of like um, emotionally immature people or parents or like people like that, right? Not to say that that's categorically like where I place my parents or anyone's, but but it's important. It's important work in understanding that sometimes the guilt that we experience comes from the guilt-laden content or guilt-laden conversations that we've had with our parents. Mm. And part of the disruption is understanding that that comes from a place of them not having the manifested like a better emotional maturity in order to actually um, not impose that upon their children. Now, being Latina, guilt is baked into parenthood. <laughs> Sorry for any parents out there, but it, and I think a lot of a lot of Latinos like joke about it because 
there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, oh, my child, when when you're older, you'll see what, you know, the mm. put me through and like things like that. That's just like culturally the language that parents use. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of comical now, right? Because I, I have a, a fair amount of distance from it. Um, but I, I have done enough of the work to say like, that is theirs. And I'm talking, when I say this, I'm, I'm not just talking, you know, about anything that my parents culturally would have said, but I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about colleagues, like anybody who tries to impose any kind of guilt upon me. Like I'm, I'm such an automatic hey there ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster oh you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you yeah or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about well get ready to feel that excitement all over again because amazon prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level absolutely prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker it's about diving into a world of endless possibilities from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Like a notice where I was going to say that's not even a word, but we're just going to throw it out there. I just noticed it like right away. I'm like, I know what's happening. So I give myself a pause and then I respond from a place that honors how I want to feel. Um, and, and then I talk myself through the guilt. Like I try to understand that guilt is going to feel like a default, but that there isn't a real reason why I should feel guilty because guilty, the feeling of guilt is implying that you did something wrong. And more often than not, you know, I probably didn't, right? It's probably just because it's the conversation just really kind of led to the feeling of guilt. Mm -hmm. um, so I went a little tangential there, but I hope I answered your question. <laughs> no, for sure. Well, well, how do you deal with it on? Well, actually you, you didn't answer my question because in my head, I'm thinking like, guilt, it really works and it's worked. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I see myself when I am imposing guilt on people and I can, I'm so, you know, disappointed in myself. Right. And then I recognize that guilt really worked on me. And in those moments, that's where I'm learning to heal. Cause I'm like, I, as the oldest, I don't want to put that on my siblings, mm -hmm. but I have seen ways that I've done that where I'm like, well, this is what we do in this family. You know, we sacrifice for each other and we help you. And they can, they're like, bro, I'm 19. I just want to live. But I'm like, well, I also wanted to live when I was your age. You know, I think about that. I think about the different dynamics that we all have as, as you know, families, I seem to attract a lot of friends who are oldest or, you know, have certain roles in their family that to your point are matriarchal. Right. And so I always, I think about them in this moment. I'm like, wow, like, as we are all healing, because I've had several conversations with my parents on like, hey, you said this and now I do this and I feel like you've benefited from me doing this. And they're like, no, like go live your life. I'm like, um, <laughs> you know, like that's not how we were all taught. And, and it also brings me to the intersection of intergenerational trauma and perfectionism, right? Because when a parent says, we don't do this in this family, going back to secrets, or we get A's or this is how we do things mm -hmm. that I see how that also translates to adulthood, 
-hmm. and how that guilt also still, you know, continues, right? And I wonder what what is the fine line between that, right? Because if a parent's trying to parent and and boast their kid up and honor their child and say like, hey, like I support you getting good grade or whatever, right? Whatever the language mm -hmm. is, because I also think that our generation is filled with so much language than the generation before us ever had. So when my parents were saying, well, get good grades, I believe they meant well, but I see how that is transferred into me as an adult and how I'm like, oh my God, when I'm not doing things that are quote unquote perfect, like I can, I was really hard on myself. That is definitely in a healing space now, but there was for a time I recognized like, oh, wow. So what, what would you say is that intersection because, and, and how adults who are not parents right now can edit that for themselves and how parents can also edit that because Again, I believe they mean well. And I've seen you talk a lot about honoring parents while honoring yourself, which I love because I think sometimes we're, we're talking about healing. People say like, go, go yell at your parents. And it's like, I don't think that's gonna help. Mm -hmm. So I wonder for you, like, if you recognize that intersection, how you've had to help people through that intersection and what people can do differently in that intersection. Mm -hmm. The heavy, lots of questions in, in one, but, uh, I'll try to tackle it. I think, you know, we can take it one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there definitely is an experience that is held, um, for uniquely for individuals that have very specific roles that almost kind of hold families together. Right. Mm. Um, the same goals for individuals that are, natural cycle breakers, right? Like the ones that notice like, hey, something needs a shift or something needs to happen that's different in this family for us to actually be better as a family, which is in part, I think some of that insight that you're talking about having come to that point of insight and then trying to reflect that back to them or reflect that to your, um, to anybody like within the family. Um, and the important uh, thing to understand around any of these things, right, is first and foremost, whenever someone is engaging in a cycle breaking process, what people most often want to do is bring everybody else with them. And they want to tell everybody else what they learned. Mm. And then they want everybody else to start disrupting with them. And what they're not giving enough credit is to the fact that they're already creating disruptions by just being a cycle breaker. When you come back into your family home and you show up as a different version of yourself that has done the work, you're already disrupting. So you're disrupting the dynamics that have existed there before because you're not showing up to those dynamics in the same way. You're disrupting the actual generational like um, processes that have been in place inside of that home because you're no longer participating in them. And so there's a lot that's happening around healing for your family already mm -hmm. by you just showing up in that space. The people are not giving themselves enough credit for that part of the work, right? What they want is to go back and be like, I found this out, you need to change. And then what that does is that it builds up walls and people don't wanna hear that because they themselves are not at that readiness point in the same ways that a cycle breaker might be. And so more often than not, Although it sounds counterintuitive, the work at that juncture right there is to pull the cycle breaker back a little bit from doing some of that educating forward mm. and to help them to just sit with their own healing and see what that brings. 
would you say that somebody who is healing or sitting with that, do they need to, hey, touch base with the family and say, hey, by the way, I changed? Is it an is it a conversation? Is it a show up and be different? Because the family also is used to a certain dynamic, right? And so when someone comes in and just disrupts without any communication, is that the best way to handle it? Or should there be communication? I mean, I'm always a, one to say that communication is is always a healthy bridge, right? Towards like change behavior. Um, but the the thing about that is that it it depends, right? It depends on the family. It depends on the levels of openness that a family might have to hearing that out. One family can hear a person saying, I'm going through a healing process. It's a journey. I'm changing. I'm shifting. And you'll notice different things about myself. Can you receive that? They might hear that and receive it. You know, there'll be tension, but not toxic tension. And another family might receive it and really shun the person, ask them, who do they think they are? Do they Mm. think they're better than everybody else? And how dare they? And like all kinds of things that can be um, disparaging, right? And so like, it, it really matters for a person to gauge what they believe is going to be the reception of their family and to, to then proceed mindfully with that in mind rather than, you know, just go in there just because, right? Like it's, it's a matter of like thinking about the nuances of the family. How do you define intergenerational trauma, by the way? Um, it is the trauma that very specifically uh, meets at the juncture of nature and nurture. So it's the one source of trauma that actually has a genetic component. So biologically, how people come into this world being predisposed to stress and to trauma responses. And then more on the psychological, sociological end, how people then live their lives and go about life and the ways in which they may encounter their own stressors and their own traumatic experiences. Whereas other types of traumas mostly focus on um, just the socio-psychological piece, right? So what happened to you, how you responded, right? Um, Intergenerational trauma also focuses on what happened before you were even conceived and how has that then transferred into genetically how you were predisposed to stress. Wow. Mm -hmm. So with that, in your experience, what was one of the hardest parts of your healing to overcome or one of the hardest healing concepts you had to reckon with? Um, for me, I, I've, I've always been someone who's like very family oriented. So for me, it's always been trying to reconcile with the fact that I can't heal my parents' past their pain, their sorrow, Um, even the ones that I suffered with them around immigration and loss, I can't take it away. And that to me is, sometimes it's still frustrating, you know, because I wish, like I see my parents and I love them so deeply and I wish that I could extract whatever it is. that. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles? And a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
deposited into their life that caused them pain. And I'm sure that goes for a lot of us, but it's just not possible. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just human and I can't do that. Um, so I think that from a generational piece, right, that's, that's been something that for sure has been there. And it's, it expands beyond my parents. It's to their parents too. I mean, like our families come from generations, especially on my mother's side, generations upon generations of Dominicans and Haitians that existed in extreme poverty. I mean, the most extreme poverty you could identify and like probably on this earth, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I wish that the experiences of lack that that comes with, like one, um, this, this woman, Brandy Carlos, who owns like therapy for Latinx. I remember one time she posted something um, and it said like, poverty is trauma. And I was like, yeah, it is, right? Like dearth, lack of resources, not having sustenance, like those kinds of things that are just such basic human needs. It's very traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine to what extent that deposited so many pockets of stress in my lineage and made its way onto my mother, onto me. And the same with my father. He's Dominican, but um, my father's family, like they are considered maybe like lower middle class in the Dominican Republic rather than in poverty. So it's a little bit different, but, but still, you know, there was, there was still lacking. And so I just wish, I wish I could take that away. I wish I could make it so that they had equity but um, it, it, it's something that I will always have to sit with and it gets easier, right? But for sure, from the gen generational perspective, that's always something that sits with me. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge weight. And, and as you talked about being the financial matriarch, how do you reckon with you know, trying to bring them to a certain place? Well, does that feel like a big weight for you as you're trying to do it? Does it feel like, an honor and excitement? Do you feel like you have to balance your self-care in the same time while doing that? Mm -hmm. Before, when I was in grad school, especially it was an honor. Like it was like, what got me through? Mm. I must make it for my family. Um, now I'm like, I like rest <laughs> and I like ease. <laughs> so it's a little bit tough because, you know, um, I want balance. And then I, I understand that I also have this goal of making sure that to the best of my ability my family by the time that I leave earth is, is no longer in poverty so that's definitely you know something that I um I put a lot of pressure on myself for my family puts zero pressure on me zero there's nothing um so I'm very lucky in that regard I know that it's very like um self-motivated um but I I believe that they like anybody else deserve that so mm -hmm. for me it's you know I don't know if it's honor. I don't, I don't think it's honor. I think it's responsibility for sure. Um, so it transferred from like the honor piece back in grad school to like responsibility. And then to actually it makes me really happy when, mm -hmm. you know, there is like a medical copay that I could cover. Um, like that to me is like, I took off stress off of my family member because they didn't have to sit there and think like, can I go to this doctor? Can I, afford this procedure in the Dominican Republic, everything is out of pocket. So, you know, can I even like live right at that point? Yeah. And then, and there's no exaggeration. Like we've had family members that legitimately have to choose. Right. Um, and so for, for me, it's, um, 
it's responsibility mixed with what what makes my heart feel good um and i i don't know if i've fully figured out the entirety of what it does yeah. but but it is my mission how does someone with a similar story in the sense of you know wanting that responsibility knowing it makes them happy knowing that they want to serve their family in a certain way also find the tools to know when it is I am being responsible and I'm using this, I'm doing this wisely, or I am enabling and I am also like taking away somebody's opportunity to help themselves. Mm, wow, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is that I now have like, for me personally, I have like decades of seeing people struggle and not being able to, I mean, like we, we have a different system in the US than in the DR, right? There is no social mobility there. Um, so so yeah, you know, I think that people have to kind of like get a, a scope of the economic landscape. Like, does the person have agency opportunity, right? Like, are those things being offered to them? But, um, you know, um, a lot of what I do for myself, and now my sister does a little bit of that for me too, which I tend to also pass forward as like, knowledge to other people that are trying to do some of this work is we engage in like workshops that are about financial literacy right or podcasts or anything that can help to understand the financial landscape better because like who would know if you're not taught right like it's like Honestly. the whole world out there of like this stuff is so scary too because it's like what stocks bonds what what is that how do you right right it's just the whole thing and um you know, it has to go beyond, we don't have to live with dirt floors on the ground. It has to be something beyond that, right? And so I'm still learning, but um, really I would, I would hope that anybody would identify whether or not they could offer financial tools or financial um, advice or if what they what the person in their family actually needs or friends actually need is for them to really give them a hand right like I think it's I've scoped out the landscape in my family and I understand kind of what the needs are there and I pace myself right like I can't just like throw everything at them I have a mortgage to pay I have to rest I have to practice what I preach I have to pace myself but um in the long term hopefully by the time I'm no longer on earth and you know my long-term goal is to hopefully have fulfilled this mm. have you and your family ever gone to therapy together oh no <laughs> <laughs> not that oh no why did you respond like that? <laughs> it's so funny I think most people think that a therapist family would be open to therapy um Mo, I, I've gotten a couple of family members uh, to, to buy into therapy, but um, my, my family is very um, committed to healing through church. So there's a lot of people that do uh, think of the this or that kind of, you know, even though they have me and they know I'm a therapist and I'm everywhere in the family, right? Like, um, I don't think it's a thing that they, they take to um, as much as they would like uh, religion yeah so and I honor that for them because it keeps them well so I'm like hey as long as you're well we're good <laughs> right, 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 right. but I don't think I could ever find my family in um in family therapy and I, I genuinely don't believe 
that at this juncture of our lives, we're at a place where we need family therapy, to be honest. But when we got reunited from when we um, were apart for so many years, we didn't know how to be together. We could have very well used a family counselor so much to help us to integrate my dad into the family unit when my mom was operating as a matriarch. And now he has two adult daughters that he left when they were little babies, right? Like, it was just like, what is happening here? It was a whole different, like, we all had to learn each other freshly and newly. And I, in retrospect, I'm like, we needed someone to help us navigate that. We did it, but it would have been nicer to have somebody say, you know, hey, try these things. What was something you wish you did know then that you do know now when it comes to integrating or or re-getting to know each other as a family. That's huge. Mm -hmm. I think stepping into the other person's shoes, because I remember my dad, he, he wanted to do things for us that you would do for a kid. And we were, Oh, my sister was 24. I was 21. So, you know, I think he, he was still yearning for that opportunity to do things, drive us places, like small things, whatever he could do, right? And we no longer needed it. And I think it was a, you know, there was grief that needed to happen for everybody that we lost those moments. And so, yeah, so I think that for sure. How would you suggest somebody talk to their family about going to therapy together? Hmm. I think um, if people talk about it from the perspective of learning like I like to learn some things about myself and I like to do it with someone are you willing to come with me rather than you need therapy too and you gotta go everybody loves McDonald's fries so yes you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home um but the bag did feel a little light That person's right. going to be like, no, they're going right. to shut you out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to build walls, you know, and it's um, it's going to make it so that um, the person's probably less likely to go. But I think if you if a person propositions a learning experience, that's what I do in my book, too. Like, I'm, you know, if a person wants to join you in the journey, it's important to help them understand, like, hey, this journey is something that might benefit you, too. Are you willing to learn? Right. I think that that's a a really healthy way in. We have a segment called Honest Gems on the show. And so I'd love to get into some honest gems with you and see where you take us. Mm -hmm. One of my first honest gems is what is something people really don't talk about when it comes to healing? Mm. Always the gunk. Like people, I mean, I think it's changing a little bit because I think we have a whole different zeitgeist right now, but um the part that where they where things feel ugly right like the mud people love talking about the victory but not the deep dark nights that they had where they had to peel themselves off their couch in order to function um those are really hard things to talk about and they can be even re-traumatizing for some folks to talk about it so I think that, you know, with good reason, those tend to be like the hardest moments for people to rehash and like talk about and get out there. What's something people really don't tell us about our inner child? Hmm. 
Wow, that's a great question. Um, mostly that our inner child is also hiding things that were probably too hard for us to bear. I think people think that an inner child had was abundantly present. Some inner children were like really hiding truths that were too hard for us. Um, and that's maybe one aspect of inner child work that I don't think is expanded upon as much as I see it, especially on social. Mm, wow, that's, I almost want you to elaborate there. I love that because that's very true. I think the inner child, even my reckoning with the inner child through therapy has been tough a bit, you know, because there was so much that I was like, no, I had a great childhood. My parents are great. They were there and they were this and they were that. And she was like, yeah, but there was, there was probably something you didn't get. And I want you to be okay with that. And I was like, but that means that I, I felt like I would have to be mad at somebody to be okay with that, or, or at least be disappointed. And that was really tough to reckon with. And so even now when I see some of my actions, she's like, you're still trying to heal that, that little girl. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, and I just, I love that little girl. I really want her to feel like she's okay. And I recognize that's not a one day. I mean, not that I even thought that, but it's, it's just not something that happens overnight. And healing is so much less about completion. It's constant, like adding one drop to the bucket. And it, and you do that until you leave this earth. I don't think it's one day. So I, and I feel like you've been expressive about that as well in terms of healing. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that all the time. Um, hoping that people, you know, can gather a bit of compassion for themselves because I've had clients actually say like, when is it coming? You know, like in desperation and sometimes even angry, right? Like I, I haven't healed yet and I'm pissed. Like this doesn't feel good. This is not what I signed up for. And I'm like, actually it is, but you know, <laughs> um, this is what it looks like behind closed doors. And that's the thing is that if we continue to glorify therapy, then we're going to have people that continue to feel disappointed that way when they start you know, the process. What is something that we don't know about sound baths? Mm. <sighs> sound baths. Um, <laughs> I love sound baths. And also, you know, they're meant to be experienced, I think, mostly, as I see it, in person. I think we, you know, we're just such a digital era and a part of like, why I broke away a little bit from doing virtual sound baths is that, right? Like there, there is a very different experience that a person has when they're in the room with a sound frequency and that sound frequency is causing vibrations inside of their body than when they're actually listening to it and the vibrations only go into their ear. Mm. It's a very different experience. And I think that's something that maybe, you know, and not everyone has the luxury of going to a studio and, and having a sound bath or going into, you know, a different country where, where sound baths are prominent, mm -hmm. being able to have that experience. So, of course, we go with what, what we can get. Um, but the experience is a little bit diluted. I want to tap back to the last thing you just said about compassion for ourselves in the middle of healing, in the middle of understanding family we all just went through a pretty like I don't want to say traumatic but yes traumatic experience with the pandemic and it was globally felt and that is something I think is so thank you to the universe as deep and painful as it was I think the universe was like all of you were going to experience this together and so with that I'm sure there were so many different family experiences good bad ugly um, what would you you know say to people as they're healing as they're going through their 
intergenerational trauma, whether they're recognizing it now or they will recognize it later or you know, how they'll experience it, how to take care of themselves throughout that process. I would say absolutely pace yourself when it comes to the healing journey of generational trauma because we have to think about what we're doing. We're unlearning and undoing decades. And even if we're just talking about unlearning and undoing the last two years, it's still a very long time to be in a state of suppression. And so if we can think about it that way, I think it offers us maybe a little bit more leeway to just allowing there to be an expanded amount of time for healing to take place. Yeah. How would you say we should honor ourselves whilst honor honor and reparent ourselves while still honoring our parents? Whatever dynamic we have with our parents, how do we still honor them? Because, you know, I see some people being like, yep, I'm cutting them off. I'm upset. I'm this. And, and you know, whatever people need to do for their journey is whatever they need to do. But I really want to put out that it's possible to honor both of us. What would you say about that? It absolutely is. I think people can get curious about what aspect of what they've held on to as far as pain looks like the pain of their parents, even if it's not apples to apples, um, because sometimes a parent can, <clears throat> excuse me, have a, this regulated nervous system chronically that looks like fight, right? The nervous system fight or flight, it looks like fight. So they've yelled at you and they've been, you know, more like on the physically aggressive end. Um, and for you, it's created a nervous system response is more of flee, right? So you've kind of been avoidant of situations, avoidant of conflict, like those sorts of things. However, if we can look at your own journey and the fact that you have felt like the stress that you experience has been too much for your body to contain. If you can mirror that to your parents, then it offers an opportunity for compassion to seep in because they themselves have had the same experience, only that their default nervous system response was different. It was fighting, right? Versus fleeing like it was for you. It's a learning opportunity. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Last but not least, what is the last thing you learned about yourself, whether in a platonic or romantic relationship? The last thing? The last thing you learned about yourself through one of those relationships. Uh, that um, I still have to do a little bit more self-honoring. <laughs> I think I'm just, I am a very giving person and I, probably everybody says that, but I, I do believe I came into this profession partly because I kind of carry that. And um, I'm trying to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, safeguarding my, my time and energy a little bit more. I say like, I am very abundant about just saying yes and doing for folks and like just giving and expanding. And I, I, sometimes I'm very exhausted. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I want to do a little bit more self-honoring. So at the end of the day, I can pop in my Netflix specials that focus on food and travel. Yeah. Be a very happy lady. <laughs> oh my God. I want that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for being on the show, Dr. Bouquet, everyone. Thank you. Oh, so wow. good. So I'm sorry. Wow. 
Yeah, thank you so much. And where can everybody keep in touch with you? I know you're writing your book right now, Break the Cycle. I'd love if you want to drop anything about your book or where we can keep in touch with you. If you want to tell us how the process is going, all the things. Yeah, yeah actually, I think I dropped more nuggets about my book here than I did in any other interview. So y'all got a little, little real human to human life. But um, yeah, I. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludacris. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. I'm actually going to take the plunge and, and actually... Um, create courses for the first time ever after years of people asking me for courses. Mm. So the, I'm launching them around September of this year and I'm excited about that. And it's a little, it's foreign territory. So it's a little scary, but you know, as a professor, I teach, right. So we should kind of feel the same, I think. <laughs> um, but you know, on my website, drmarielbouquet.com, people can find information about that um, if they click on courses. Or um, I'm also on social media at drmarielbouquet.com. Well, doctor dot marielbouquet on social, um, so people can find me there as well. Good, and we're gonna drop everything as well. And I'm sure writing a book called Break the Cycle is extremely um mirroring so i'm just sending you so much love in that process because that is wow that's mm -hmm. it yeah yeah oh yes <laughs> yeah in my head i'm like what are you thinking <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot there for sure but it's such a good book i'm not just saying that but my goodness i poured so much of, of my work and my heart into that and I feel like it's just going to be such a good healing tool. Like people can carry it and be like, I've got something that I could use tangibly and I could be well or more well than I have been because I have the, the tools that are within this book. And that's what I want. I want people to have that feeling. And so um, I'm really aiming for that. So I'm bringing a lot of intention into those pages. Yeah. Wow. Because you were brought up tools, I'll just ask you this last question as well. Um, what are some tools that people can can use to protect themselves from toxic friend, toxic relationships within family? Mm. Well, you know, um, one of the things that is gonna be really essential is for people to be able to notice for themselves when they need to exit a conversation. I think oftentimes we get so wrapped up in the back and forth um, and that can become so much of the norm that then we have to do so much work undo the remnants of emotions that it's left us with but if we transition from the conversation early enough to where we can actually like have a moment to breathe I think that, that can offer us an opportunity to not be wrapped up or rewrapped into the cycle that's definitely something that's going to be important and it's one of the hardest things for people to do period for someone to say I'm stopping here and I'm transitioning it's incredibly hard so I know that it, it's hard, but one thing that I always urge people to do is that, you know, it takes practice, right? It takes building mastery around a skill, like a tool, like a psychological tool. So it means that you'll have to do it probably hundreds of times before it actually becomes a default, which mm -hmm. is a lot. People think like one, two, three times and I got it. Not quite. 
actually you're undoing a lot of learning that you did previously, which is going to take many, many repetitions. That's definitely something that I think, you know, most people probably don't know as much, right? But it's a, it's a nugget that I think, you know, any of us can need at any point in time. Dr. Bouquet, everyone, again, I just mm -hmm. really appreciate it. I was like, I, I want to get that gem from her and see where she thinks that we could also have the tools to protect ourselves in this healing process, but also recognize that it is a serious one day at a time experience. And so yeah. thank you for elaborating on that and giving your insight. And I just really appreciate you. Thanks so much for being on the show. And thank you guys for listening to Human Human. Thanks for listening to the Human to Human podcast and this episode with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Y'all see why I said it was healing? So good, right? And Dr. Bouquet is actually writing her book right now, Break the Cycle, so please look out for that. But in the meantime, go to drmariellebouquet.com for resources like sound bath information, meditations, journal prompts, and updates on her book release. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, leave a review, and while you're at it, share this with someone you love or just someone you like, as long as you share it. Stay connected between episodes and follow us on Instagram at Human Human with Stacey Ike. I really cannot wait to see your feedback about this episode. I'm your host, Stacey Ike, and remember, curiosity is the pathway to consciousness. So let's take the next step together. This episode was produced by executive producer Stacey Ike, producer Paris McCoy, and associate producers Henrietta Bayemi and Emma Jackson. Audio engineer Brian Schaefer. Theme music pieces by After the Fall. Music released by Chill Out Records. Post-production audio by the Revolt Podcast Network. And special thanks to our guests, supporters, and the entire team at Human to Human Productions. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.